welcome to the Rebel at Large Adventure Podcast. I'm Drifter. And I'm Gypsy. Talking about ghost towns, graveyards, outlaws, heroes, and ladies of the night. Howdy folks. Thanks for joining us for yet another adventure to another place and back to another time. <laughs> Today we'll be heading to Portland, Oregon, not just for the view of bridges and steamships along the river. Today we're taking you underground. What we are going to tell you about on this trip is a pass that Portland does not want you to see or know about. It's a dark secret that the city has tried to cover up for years. Michael P. Jones and the Cascade Geographic Society have spent about 21 years trying to preserve the history and tell its story. Today we are going to share with you our trip to the Shanghai Tunnels. Before we get into the history of the Shanghai Tunnels, we want to give you a brief history of Portland itself. In 1843, a drifter, huh? not you, oh. from Tennessee named William Overton and his buddy Asa Lovejoy, who was a lawyer from Boston, were floating down the Willamette River when they came upon an area now known as Portland. The two of them filed a land claim and got to work clearing trees, building houses, and putting in roads. Overton decided to move on and sold his half of the land to Francis Pettigrove. It's funny, when I actually moved to the Northwest, there was a guy I was talking to saying, yeah, here we spend hundreds of dollars to plant a tree to actually have some, but out there you cut down all the trees. Yeah. So just what they're saying, they're clearing all the trees. It's gorgeous out there. Well, I read something that they used to refer to Portland as Stumptown because huh? they had so many trees that they just went through and cut everything down. There was just stumps everywhere. And yeah. They just built on top of these stumps. Yeah. yeah. Who needs a foundation? <laughs> yeah. You got a pretty solid one. Yeah. Well, the town didn't have an official name. So when Pettigrove came into the picture, he and Asa Lovejoy came up with a clever idea to flip a coin and the winner would get to pick the name. Lovejoy, being from Massachusetts, wanted to name the town Boston. And Pettigrove, being from Maine, wanted to name the town Portland. Pettigrove won the coin toss, obviously. <laughs> Two out of three tosses, and that is how Portland came to be named. With an unconventional start, Portland still prides itself on remaining eclectic ever since. Indeed. Kind of fun. Keep Oregon weird, they say on all the shirts. Yeah, yeah, they do, huh? Mm -hmm. uh, well, in 1850, Congress passed the Oregon Land Act, which allowed every man and woman 320 acres of land. By then, roughly 800 people were living in the area, and they made a living by catching and selling fish, cutting timber for lumber, growing wheat, and raising cattle in the Green Mountain Ranges. Portland also became a major transportation center because of its proximity to the railroads and rivers. Oregon was the 33rd state to join the Union in 1859. Before that, it was known as the Oregon Territory as all. The territory stretched along the Pacific coast from California to Canada and east to the Rocky Mountains. Basically, the territory covered what is now Oregon, Washington State, Idaho, and Montana. That's a large territory. Mm -hmm. Montana's pretty big, so yeah. yeah. Uh, Portland was one of the largest shipping hubs. Farmers would bring their cattle and produce into town, and loggers would bring their building materials to be shipped to San Francisco and then to the rest of the world. The captains of the ship would need a crew to help run the ship, and it was actually difficult to find the needed men because the gold rush was happening all over the area, and the men didn't want to leave and miss out on this chance to strike it rich in the gold fields. And this brings us to the Shanghai Tunnels. Yeah, here we go. Going down. 
So we have some <laughs> uncommon words here. Uh, crimpers, they were the men that would kidnap people. Uh, crimping refers to kidnapping. Uh, crimping actually started being referred to as Shanghaiing on the West Coast because traffic from the Pacific Coast to Asia was increasing. According to the dictionary, Shanghai means to force a person to join a ship's crew by drugging them or using other underhanded means. Shanghai is the practice of kidnapping people to serve as sailors by coercive techniques such as trickery, intimidation, or violence. We refer to this now as human trafficking. So Shanghai began in Portland in the 1850s when the ships would come into port to unload or load up on goods. If the ships were not heading south to San Francisco, the men would jump ship and try to make it to the gold fields on their own. The captains would need men, so he would pay someone to bring him men to run a ship. Another way the captain would lose his men is the crimpers would shanghai him and hold him ransom. If the captain wanted his men back, he'd have to pay him $50 per person. Things really started to get out of hand by the 1870s because the men doing the crimping had established a perfect routine by going underground. The city would not accept that this was happening because they were making money from this operation. As long as the good folks of Portland didn't see what was going on and the city was making money, the city did not care. They just don't care. Nope. Well, the tunnels were built all along the Portland waterfront, from the North End, which is today's Old Town, Skidmore Fountain, and the Chinatown to the South End, which is today's Southwest Downtown area. When they built the buildings, they built the tunnels at the same time and would connect the tunnels as they went. This made a winding, confusing maze of underground terra. They connected to the many saloons, brothels, gambling parlors, and opium dens. These areas would draw in a large number of men, which was perfect for Shanghai. With cooperation of police, politicians, and big business leaders, these riverfront neighborhoods became more notorious than the Barbary Coast in San Francisco. The crimpers would not kidnap anyone that was from the area. Instead, they would look for drifters, loggers, miners, cowboys, anyone that came into town to enjoy their hard-earned money. It was estimated that roughly 1,500 to 3,000 men a year were kidnapped. But men were not the only ones taken. Women were victims as well. So women were kidnapped and placed in a small wooden box of total darkness and isolation. The kidnappers would tell them terrible things in an attempt to break their very souls. It would take around three days to break a woman, and once they did, they were sold into white slavery, never to be seen or heard from again. If they did not sell the women into slavery, they would keep them and use the women to lure men into the tunnels for a night of pleasure. Once the men were in the tunnels, they would be knocked out and dragged into a holding cell. The saloons were one of the best places to kidnap somebody. The bartenders would make sure that everyone in the bar was too drunk to notice anything, and they didn't want anyone to leave while drinking, so they had troughs installed under the bar so the men could stand there and pee while they were drinking. <laughs> Convenient. It had a smell terrible in there. <laughs> Um, once everyone was good and drunk, the bartenders would hit a buzzer, notifying the crimpers a victim was on the way. He would pull a lever, and the trapdoor the victim was standing on would drop him into the underground tunnel. I think it's uh, Jake's Restaurant downtown. Mm -hmm. uh, seafood. It's Jake's Seafood. Really nice place. They have a new menu every day. They just print it on what has come in on the ships and then what's left from their last purchase and whatnot. So the shark variations would change and all that. Huh, so it's all fresh. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
So the they have a really nice restaurant area, and then they have a side that is a bit more of a diner. Mm-hmm. So you get real fancy tablecloths, or you get the loud part. There's a bar in there and a TV. They always have the games on. And at that bar, they have this trough built in as well. It's tiled in, so you could sit there. I don't think they encourage you to take a leak while you're sitting at the bar anymore, but the trough is still there. That is so cool. Yeah. I would love to be able to see that in person. Yeah, I didn't even think about going into Jake's last time we were there. Yeah, I guess we'll have to go back. Okay. All the time. We always do that. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> we always find something after the fact to go back to. Yep. <laughs> All right, well, one story we were told was that some friends went into a bar to drink, and they put one of their friends in charge of staying sober. We had a lookout for the night. He had one beer for the entire night and stood at the door to make sure his pals didn't leave with anyone. As the night went on, he noticed that one of his friends was gone. But he knew he never saw him leave because he was at the door the entire night. Well, he left, but not through the front door. He was dropped through the floor onto a mattress in the tunnels. Once the man was underground, they would be dragged into the maze of tunnels and placed into a holding cell. The holding cells were made of brick, wood, or tin, and if you were lucky, you would get placed in a cell that had a window, which would allow for some airflow. I'm sure it was excruciating hot underneath there. Humid, damp, yeah. Mm -hmm. Nasty. They would stay in the holding cells until a captain would come into port and let the kidnappers know how many men they needed. The men were sold for $50 a head, like we said. In 1850, that is equivalent to about $1,700 today. So once the crimpers knew how many men were needed, they would drug them and haul them off during the night to be placed on a ship that would be gone for anywhere from three to six years, depending on where the ship went. They would have to drug the men long enough for the ship to make it down the Columbia River and over the bar out to the ocean. That trip took about 13 to 16 hours. So if the men woke up before they made it out to sea, they would try to jump overboard and swim to shore. But most of the men never made it. They would die trying to swim to shore. That water out there is 58 degrees year-round. So hypothermia would kick in pretty quick. Oh, really? Because mm-hmm. when I read that, I thought, well, it doesn't seem like that river is that wide. It is. When you get out into the ocean, that inlet's pretty wide. Is it? I mean, the whole thing is really wide. But yeah, all that water is always 58 degrees. Yeah, so you wouldn't be able to survive long enough in the water, even if you are not that far out from shore, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'd be one, one hell of a swim. Wow. In the Pacific Ocean right there, it's very strong. You know, very active and very strong. So trying to swim against it as the tide's moving out or, you know, waves pulling in. Huh. Be pretty tough. Another thing I forgot to add was they were talking that some of the men, when they would get drugged, they would drug them with opium. Hmm. But they would sometimes give them too much because they wouldn't know what they were doing. So some of the men would die on the ship from being drugged to get out to the ocean. Yeah. Well, if they already got their 50 bucks, they don't care. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, once they were on the ship, the men were still not safe because they were the new men on board. So if the ship ran out of food, they would unfortunately be the first ones eaten. If there was more than one new man on board, they would actually have to draw straws to determine who would be the first one eaten. Hmm. That's that's a shitty draw to straw. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And the work on the ship was hard and they also did not get paid for it. So it was very few men actually made it back from being shanghaied. Well, in the tunnels, they had opium dens as well. There was a set of stairs that would lead down to the room from an alleyway. The room had bunks in it that were stacked with about three beds. The bed on the bottom cost the most because if you fell out of bed, you would have the shortest fall. (laughs) 
the men in the opium dens were warned not to leave or they would be captured. The crimpers in the tunnels would run a string of tin cans across the hallway, and if someone bumped into it, they would know exactly where they were in the tunnels. They also used this method to know someone escaped from the holding cells. Another way they would keep the men in the cells is they would take their shoes and then place pieces of broken glass on the ground. That way, if someone did get out and tried to run, they would cut up their feet, and the crimpers could follow the trail of blood and find the men. They didn't want the men getting out because, one, they obviously wanted their money for the men, mm. but they also didn't want the men telling anybody what was happening. Yeah. Well, one of the more well-known crimpers was a man named Joseph Bunko Kelly. Joseph earned his name Bunko while looking for one more man to give a captain. He had spent the entire night searching in the bars and brothels, and there was no one to be found. As he stood in the street wondering what to do, he saw the six-foot-tall, 300-pound wooden Indian statue in front of Wildman's tobacco shop. Kelly decided he was going to wrap him up in a sheet and carry him to the sea captain. He told the captain that he had to use extra drugs to knock out this large Indian and wanted $75 for him, not the regular 50 He also warned the captain to not wake him up until he was out to sea because he could get in a big fight with this guy. So as the captain was on his way down the Columbia River, he decided to take a look at the man he had paid this extra money for. As he pulled the sheet back, he realized he had been duped. He was so pissed by this, he threw the statue overboard, and it eventually washed up on shore in Astoria, Oregon. As word made it around what Kelly did, he earned the name Bunko for his ability to deceive the ship's captain. The cigar store Indian has been returned to the group and has his residence back inside the tunnels. I'm pretty sure we have a picture of it. Yeah, I think I do, actually. It was kind of fun to see him. Um. <laughs> Another story about Kelly is the Flying Prince incident. He was asked by a captain to find him a full crew for the Britisher. The Flying Prince was to set sail for China. Kelly, not being one to pass down $720, started on his hunt for men. As he walked past the Snug Harbor Saloon, he heard voices in the basement. Kelly walked down the stairs to find a group of men drunk. And the number of men he found varies depending on what story you're reading. It's either 8 or 40 men. He quickly got his friends to help him load the men into a wagon and take them to dock. I mean, they're already drunk, right? Perfect. Just mm -hmm. grab them and go. Yep. Um, as the ship made its way to Astoria, the captain sent someone down to wake up the crew, but he found out all the men were dead. Kelly didn't find the men drinking in the basement of the Snug Harbor Saloon. He actually found the men drinking in the basement of the Johnson and Sons Mortuary. The men thought they were drinking a barrel of whiskey, but instead they were drinking embalming fluid. Delish. You think you might know the difference. I was just wondering that. Like, you would think you would taste this and think this does not taste like liquor <laughs> yeah but it still got him drunk so that's kind of interesting well it fucked him up somehow yeah that's true <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's true uh well the british government was so upset by this that they actually threatened to boycott portland if something was not done about kelly i did read one story that somebody actually did a lot of research about this specific incident mm. and they were able to kind of disprove that this wasn't true Regardless, it's still a pretty fun story. Yeah, it's a fun story. <laughs> Most of the stories are probably all lies anyway. Yeah. But it's fun. Yeah. Well, when Prohibition arrived in Portland, the bars moved underground to the tunnels. And this made Shanghai even easier. The men were already there in the tunnels. Yeah. Why easy not? to take them, right? Yeah. yeah. 
So the hobo bar, where the tour starts, had a sign up in the window during Prohibition that read soda, which was code for the booze. Yeah, that's fun, huh? Mm-hmm. The government tried to control the crimping, and in 1872, they passed the Shipping Commissioners Act. This act made it so a sailor had to sign on to the ship in the presence of a federal shipping commissioner. The commissioner was intended to make sure the sailor wasn't forcibly or unknowingly signed on by a crimp. By the late 19th and early 20th century, ships actually started to adopt the use of steam power, which meant that they did not need as many unskilled laborers to run the ship, and this also helped stop the crimpers. In 1915, the Siemens Act was passed, and this made crimping a federal crime, but men were still being shanghaied up until the 1940s. Hmm. Well, today, Oregon wants people to believe the tunnels were used to control the floodwaters from the Willamette River, and not for Shanghai. They're even forcing store owners to cover up the tunnels under their buildings in an attempt to hide the connections. Michael Jones and his crew have worked for years at preserving the tunnels and telling its stories. It may be a dark side of Portland, but it's still part of its history. Yep, we can't forget about it, right? Yep. Michael passed away on March 29th, 2020. When we went on our tour of the tunnels, we actually got the chance to hear Michael tell the story of how he discovered the tunnels and the stories he was able to uncover during his research. When he was seven years old, his stepfather, Dewey Kirkpatrick, told him about the tunnels. Michael was pretty skeptical of this story, so his stepfather took him to a half-torn-down building to show him the tunnels. Michael could not get the tunnels out of his mind and kept talking about them with his stepfather. Dewey finally told him that if he would only go into the tunnels with him, he would get him into the tunnels as often as he could. That's fun. Mm-hmm. Well, Michael spent the rest of his life researching, interviewing locals, and doing everything he could to learn about the tunnels. In 1979, he founded the nonprofit Cascade Geographic Society. Then he and a crew spent years clearing out the tunnels as much as they could in order to give tours. So the tour that we went on was during Halloween, and they had a special haunted tour. Yeah, it was super fun. Mm -hmm. So like we mentioned before, the tour started at the Hobo Restaurant in Old Town at 120 North West 3rd Avenue. They take you out to the side alley, and this is where we get to hear Michael tell us all about his haunted experiences inside the tunnels. He told us he's heard voices, growls, he felt someone breathing down his neck, and was even scratched at a time. He showed us a picture of an apparition that was in the tunnels and warned us of the evil spirits lurking down below. As you enter the tunnels, the ceilings are very short, and there are also pipes running along the ceiling from the stores above. So if you do get the chance to go in inside, make sure that you watch your head. I think I barely fit underneath there. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I was hunched over the whole time. <laughs> There's a few spots I know I was standing upright and taking a couple pictures, but most of it was hunched down, making sure I'm not knocking myself out. Yeah. While they were clearing out the tunnels, they ran like string lights through the tunnels. Mm -hmm. But keep in mind, when the tunnels were first built, they did not have electricity back then. So it was pitch black in there. Yeah. Super scary to think about that. A little bit. <laughs> well, once inside the tunnels, they take you to one of the opium dens that has the bunk beds in there and a set of stairs in the corner. They told us that under the floorboards, they found a storage area where they're guessing they would hide the opium. If they were getting a raid, huh? Mm -hmm. Toss it in the floor. 
Um, they take you to an area with a wooden box with a small door on it that is placed in the middle of the room. Inside the box is just enough room for a small wooden chair, and this is where they would place the women that they crimped. They would lock them in there for as long as they needed to break the woman's soul and then sell them to a pimp. One story of a woman in the tunnels is of Nina. The story goes that she was a working girl who was sold and forced into the lifestyle. While some missionaries were in the area trying to clean it up, they told Nina if she would give them information about the underground, they would help free her from the lifestyle that she did not choose. Nina agreed, but shortly after, she was found dead in the Merchant Hotel. If I remember correctly, she was pushed from the third floor. Hmm. But the Old Town Pizza is located in the exact area of the building Nina was found dead in. And they love to tell her story and how she haunts the building. So if you get a chance to ever go to the pizza place, I'm sure they would tell you all the details that they've been able to uncover about it. Right. On the tour, they also walk you past the few holding areas left that they would place the men inside. You get to look through the steel bars in the wall, and it gives you a pretty good idea of what it would have felt like to be locked up inside there. Mm -hmm. There's no light in the cell, and it's, it has a pretty terrible feeling about it. Yeah, it was eerie for me. I remember putting my hand through the bar. I'm like, ooh, like, mm -hmm. super afraid something was going to like grab me. <laughs> Um, they also walked us up into an area that had the string cans they would use as traps strung up around an area on the floor. And they have on display in that area a box with several pairs of logger boots that they had found while digging in the area. And you can tell that they're logger boots because they have spikes on the soles of the shoes. Mm -hmm. Also, I remember uh, one of the videos I watched, They Michael said that they put the shoes in a box so at the end of the tour they can take them back out of the tunnels because people were going in and stealing stuff from the tunnels oh so they have to lock the shoes up yeah well i mean if you remember these are the boots of the men that were taken and sold to the sea captains uh, we told you that they would take the boots off the men so that they wouldn't escape but if they were able to get out the crimpers had placed the glass on the ground around their area to cut up the men's feet yeah. So it would make sense to have these extra boots laying around that they would find up because nobody there left to fill them. Yeah. Yep. Ugh. Um, I think the most disturbing part of the tour is when they take you to the mattress that's just sitting there on the ground. And the mattress was there to provide the men being dropped through the floor a soft place to land. As you stand there and they tell you about the deadfall trapdoor, they pull a lever and this would open the door, allowing for a stuffed human to fall down on the mattress. Mm. It was pretty spooky, and it just gave you this, like, horrible feeling that would, you know, what would it be like to be inside of a bar drinking and enjoying yourself, and then the next thing you know, you're underground in a dark tunnel. You don't know where you're at, and nobody knows where you're at. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Those things remind me of uh, the trapdoor guillotines, or not guillotines. Um... Oh, the, the floor of a guillotine? No, gallows. Oh, the gallows, yeah. Yeah, kind of crazy. Yeah, that's true. It does kind of seem like that, huh? Yeah, there's just no noose on them. Uh-huh. Well, and he, uh, they said that the doors were built on a counterweight, so they would pull the lever and then it would just quickly bring itself back up. Mm -hmm. And it was that quick. Yeah. Well, our tour only took us through the parts that obviously had been cleared and safe to walk through. They told us they were working on expanding the tunnels to more areas, and when we check the website, it looks like they're getting pretty close to achieving this. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm pretty sure there's 
probably hundreds of miles of, well, I guess there wouldn't be hundreds of miles of it. I'm pretty sure there's a lot, <laughs> you know, each store owns the tunnel that's underneath of it. So they have to have permission to go through an excavator yeah. and do all that too. But yeah. yeah. So hopefully with Michael gone, the organization itself will continue on and carry on his legacy for him. I know. I sure hope that they do. Mm -hmm. um, when we went to see the Shanghai tunnels, it was actually our first trip that the two of us had flown to a location together. It was the start of our relationship, as well as celebrating Drifter's birthday. My 29th, I believe. Uh, for how many times have you been 29? I'm uh, not saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, we stayed at the McMinimum's Edgefield Hotel, which we told you guys a bit about in mile marker 12. Drifter actually took me to the McMinimum's Embry Hall and Cornelius Pass Roadhouse to show me where he used to work. So that was super fun. Mm -hmm. And we got to see the octagonal barn. Yeah, it's an area they actually rented out for catering stuff. You could have a wedding inside this barn. Oh, fun. But it's one of the last six octagonal shaped barns standing in the United States. That's and it's, cool. it's a super old historic property. And the barn had something to do with its unique shape was for feeding. There's a loft above it, kind of open in the middle, which made it for a great venue. Uh-huh. And a big and wide open of hardwood and floors. Super cool, but pretty unique out there on the property. Yeah. Wow. Uh, we also got to see the White Shed. Yeah, which at a time, that was the smallest bar. I'm not sure if it was just in the state or across the entire United States. I don't recall which title it held, but when you saw it, it was expanded because they had Put, added a bank out of a bunch of old windows mm -hmm. but before that and that's where the bartender would sit but originally it was half that size oh wow and it used to just be the ice house for the the Embry family property was this the same location that had the cigar bar area yeah that was the white shed is was now it? just a cigar bar mm -hmm. and they had like uh pipes running with a flame coming out of it all the time right yeah, I'm not sure if the White Shed had one. The cigar bar up at Edgefield had the perpetual flame in their cigar bar up there. Okay, yeah. The McMinimums have done like an amazing job with everything. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, well, we also got to see the location of where your uh, body piercing studio once was in Portland. Yeah, yeah just outside in the Aloha area. Mm-hmm. And not only did we get to see the Shanghai Tunnels, but this was also the trip that we went on the tour to the Oregon State Hospital, which again is mile marker 12. Right. So if you want to hear about that, check it out. Absolutely. Well, folks, there you have it. That was our trip to the seedy underbelly of the town, once referred to as the Forbidden City of the West. Again, the city would rather not confirm any of the stories, and as many articles are written stating that the Shanghai part never happened, noting that though the tunnels are near the river, within a few blocks, none currently lead to the river itself. Either way, it's a great story, and the, the tour is well worth it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we wouldn't hesitate to take the tour again, given the opportunity. Mm -hmm. So, as for the tales... You make up your own mind. <laughs> a lot of the research found for this uh, was from websites called the pdxhistory.com and the portlandtunnels.com, which is actually the website you would go to to book the tour if you want to go. But they are not doing tours right now. The hobo bar is shut down for COVID. And I did see that they were talking about doing virtual tours. Oh, yeah. Like the one the Winchester house was. That would be cool. Yeah. But I didn't see when they were going to do them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We'll let you guys know if we catch any wind of it. Yeah. Because that would be pretty fun to do a little walkthrough tour of it. Mm-hmm. Well, are we uh, 
We're doing this dad joke thing again. I don't know. You were kind of cracking up dad jokes earlier. Yeah. Did we get them all out of the way? Or did you, you probably found something just for this, didn't you? I did. You want to hear it? Oh, you should know better than to ask. Because <laughs> you'll tell me no. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Tell us what you found. Okay. What do you call tunnels in the Philippines? Um, what, what do you, tell me, what do you call tunnels in the Philippines? Fallopian tubes. <laughs> Philopium. I hate that I can't see your face right now. <laughs> you're probably okay not seeing my face. Because I know you're just rolling your eyes like, oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Good God. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Well, <laughs> thanks again for joining us on another one of our many adventures. Yep. Um, if you're into it, the rate and review thing is appreciated for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard it help. <laughs> More so if you're enjoying us, please share us with your friends. Yeah, that's fun too. If you have any. Yeah. I'm we're just kidding. We're out, we're out of them. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to follow along with us, you can find us mostly on Instagram. At Rebel at Large. Uh, you can visit our website. Rebelatlarge.com where you'll find photos of our journeys and also links to other social deals and email. If you want to help Gypsy with her jokes, you can send her an email there. <laughs> I bet Please. you somebody has a better one. I bet you they do. <laughs> well, um, if you'd like to help us put some fuel in the tanks, you can find us on the Patreon as well. We've got links to all that on the show notes and the website. Mm -hmm. So otherwise, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with yet another adventure for you. Safe travels. We'll see you all down the road. A drifter, which Hello? is not the drifter here with me today. Oh. <laughs> Maybe it was you and you've been reincarcerated. <laughs> <laughs> Incarcerated means prisoned. Oh. <laughs> Reincarnated would be probably what you're trying to say. Yeah. Okay. We could cut that part out. <laughs> <laughs> I offer you my condolences. Thank you so much. <laughs> Okay, we'll start over. All right, I'll, I'll begin again. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Did you just dad joke me? Did I? Because I was trying to say you were reincarcerated and re whatever. And then you said, I'll begin again. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. All right. Shanghaiing is the practice of kidnapping people to serve as sailors by coercive techniques. Boop. By coercive techniques. That's that's a shitty draw to straw. Commissioner's Act, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Well, Michael passed away on March 29th, nineteen twenty. Not and... likely. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
1920, that's funny. <laughs> Not likely. Okay. And Drifter actually took me to the McMinimums Ebri, right? Embry. Embry. 